you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. On the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. Welcome to part two of a four-part series I'm doing on the book The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. Uh, this being part two, I would recommend listening to part one <laughs> as uh, I will have talked about a whole section of this book that you will be missing if you haven't listened to that so far. And I also kind of explain what this book is and what it was intended for a little bit in part one. But briefly, Karl Popper wrote this book, I believe, in the 50s. Ah, 1945, it looks like. So I wasn't quite there, but yes. And this is a book all about a very, very, very thorough defense, both philosophically and practically, of the open society and its enemies. And to reiterate from last time, the enemies that Popper most specifically targets are the characters in history of Plato, Hegel, and Marx, all philosophers in their own way, and all the things Popper thinks was wrong with them. And in part one, I talked about the beginning of Plato's ideas, the myth of historic or the myth of destiny that leads to the idea of historicism, and a little bit about Heraclitus and the Platonic forms, and a little bit about Plato's sense of justice. And today I'll be finishing up the first volume, which is basically all about Plato. So today I'll be talking about Plato's sense of leadership and why Popper thinks. And I mean, you can basically substitute Luke for Popper's opinion. Uh, they're pretty interchangeable. I mean, there's probably a couple things in the book that I don't know if I totally agree with Popper, but by and large, this being a 500-page book, I'm mostly on board and just very resonant with his ideas. And so today, yeah, Principle of Leadership, The Philosopher King, Plato's Idea of Aestheticism, Perfectionism and Utopianism, as well as there's a chapter called The Open Society and Its Enemies, which is a little bit more reflective and a little bit less polemical. And I think that's pretty interesting, too. So then by the end of today's episode, I'll be done volume one of the book. And then in part three, I'll start with Hegel and a little bit of Marx. And then part four, we'll be finishing up because the whole the section on Marx is quite long. However, before I start today, I have to tell a joke. So, why was the bike leaning on the fence? Because it was too tired. <laughs> yep, that's a good one. So just before I begin this episode, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, it's a real pleasure making this podcast, and I hope you get as much out of it, well, even half as much out of it as I enjoy putting into it, because it's a real treat. If you subscribe to the podcast, um, you'll get notified every time a new episode comes out. And if you have Apple Podcasts, it would be really awesome if you could leave a rating and review. 
So that's a really good way to help new people find the show. Uh, and if you think you have any friends who are philosophically or psychologically inclined or like to hear people talking about their passions, you can tell your friends. Word of mouth is a really good way too. You can send me an email, liberalsoul87 at gmail.com, as well as uh, there's a Facebook group, The Liberal Soul, you can find. There's a Twitter, at liberalsoul87, but I'm not very good at Twitter. I'm still learning, so <laughs> don't uh, expect me to be running on all cylinders on that front. Okay, so we're going to start on chapter 7 of the book, The Principle of Leadership, and this is Plato's take and subsequently Popper's criticism of Plato's take on leadership. So at the beginning of this chapter, there's a quote from Plato saying, the wise shall lead and rule, and the ignorant shall follow. And I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs of this chapter, because I think it really sets in motion what is the difference between the historicist or the utopian's idea of leadership and who should rule in a polity or a state, and the liberal or the piecemeal engineer or the person in favor of the open society, as Popper would frame it. So, Popper. It is clear that once the question who should rule is asked, it is hard to avoid some such reply as the best or the wisest or the born ruler or he who masters the art of ruling or perhaps the great the general will or the master race or the industrial workers or the people. All of that was in parentheses and capitalized as so <laughs> to denote the abstract noun versus the common everyday. Back to Popper. But such a reply, convincing as it may sound, for who would advocate the rule of the worst, or the greatest fool, or the born slave, is, as I shall try to show, quite useless. First of all, such a reply is liable to persuade us that some fundamental problem of political theory has been solved. But if we approach political theory from a different angle, then we find that far from solving any fundamental problems, we've merely skipped over them by assuming that the question who should rule is fundamental. For even those who share this assumption of Plato's admit that political rulers are not always sufficiently good or wise, and that it is not at all easy to get a government on whose goodness or wisdom one can implicitly rely. If that is granted, then we must ask whether political thought should not face from the beginning the possibility of bad government, whether we should not prepare for the worst leaders and hope for the best. But this leads to a new approach to the problem of politics, for it forces us to replace the question, who should rule, by the new question— how can we so organize political institutions that bad or incompetent rulers can be prevented from doing too much damage? Now, I think, in a historical sense, this is why the Federalist Papers and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton were so important to the beginning of the American story, because... Revolution is one thing, Declaration of Independence is one thing, but one of the great things about the way that the Federalist Papers talked about how they were going to even run the country afterward was they were throwing in the checks and balances. They were framing a system where no one had too much power and basically anticipating the jealousy and avarice and ruthlessness of potential political rulers, people, and, and especially being aware of the underlying human ambition to rule. And this is a complete this is a fundamental difference, I think, in freedom societies versus strongman societies or totalitarian societies, even as we'll see later in this episode, is that what kind of institutions can we start to build that plan for bad leaders and hope 
we get good ones instead of just asking who should be the best ones. And this is a pretty big paradigm shift from what Plato was talking about, because like he says, implicitly, it just kind of skips over this really big question about like, well, if we end up getting a bad leader, (laughs) how are we possibly going to have any uh, effect against them? And assuming we can't get good leaders forever, which seems to be the case that we cannot, how can we have a kind of mechanism in place to keep them from doing too much damage? And that's a completely different paradigm, which I think I'm putting in the mouth of a liberal, which because Karl Popper talked about it, and I see him as a great liberal in the in the tradition. So on the next page, Popper makes the point that we need these checks and balances because... In fact, in manifest reality, in the real world, most leaders are actually below average. (laughs) Popper. In order to raise the question of institutional control of the rulers, we need not assume more than that governments are not always good or wise. But since I have said something about historical facts, I think I should confess that I feel inclined to go a little bit beyond this assumption. I am inclined to think that rulers have rarely been above the average, either morally or intellectually, and often below it. And I think that it is reasonable to adopt, in politics, the principle of preparing for the worst, as well as we can, though we should, of course, at the same time, try to obtain the best. It appears to me madness to base all of our political efforts upon the faint hope that we shall be successful in obtaining excellent or even competent rulers. Strongly as I feel in these matters, it appears to me madness to base all of our political efforts upon the faint hope that we shall be successful in obtaining excellent or even competent rulers. Um, I guess this is a potential situation where Popper or me, I guess, because I'm the one, I'm the conduit here in this episode, uh, as being like pessimistic and cynical about humanity or rulers or leaders. And I thought about that for a bit because this was something I try to always think about what I would say to a fair-minded interlocutor on a case like this. And and I really think for this one, I'm totally willing to bite the bullet and be hard-nosed and say... Yeah, I'd rather be pessimistic and um, cynical about human nature and human ambition and the, and the corruption of power um, across the board. I'm just much more willing to side on that side than on a kind of naive hope in, in the qualities of single people or individual people as leaders. That's not to say I wouldn't be quite uh, happy to see good leaders and always am looking to cast my vote in any election for a candidate or a party that I think holds my values more than any of the other ones in any given election. If I were ever on a board hiring for leaders in a company, that's I'd look for that too. But much more than that, I think the meta-awareness of the corruptibility of human ambition and human nature when presented with power would make me way more interested in uh, creating systems that didn't allow people to do too much damage when they got in to power and I guess in that sense I'm I'm a I mean I'm not in any sort of sense a uh, federalist planner or anything like that like Madison but I resonate with Madison reading I believe it's like the federalist paper 51 on James Madison's take on what is government and what is human nature these checks and balances and the institutional strength of different groups holding each other kind of in abeyance is is crucial i think um 
even culturally at the beginning of the United States, I mean, there were so many different Protestant sects that wanted to be in control of the government so that they could get their way. And really, the fact that there is no government control for religion means that they're kind of all just like keeping each other in check, which is, um, I think, a healthy way to keep things kind of stable. There's a tension between when leaders want to do something, but then are corrected by institutional control. And I'm not an expert in this realm. Like I said last episode, I'm not an expert in a lot of this stuff. But it seems to me to be sensical to have checks and balances on a leader's ambition. And again, I think all of this common sense stuff is what Popper is pointing out is gets overlooked if you just ask the question, who should rule? And not, how can we make sure the rulers don't do too much damage once they're in control? And I'll be a cynic on this one because I think the stakes are high enough when it comes especially to political power. And then the next thing in this chapter that really hit home for me is Popper talking about, even in 1945, I guess, when this book came out, how easy it is for media or intelligentsia to blame democracy itself on democratic shortcomings in its processes. Popper shifts the blame to the citizens of a democracy. And I love this because I, maybe this will be unpopular. I think one of the one of the malaises of our era is how comfortable in the West people are, which disengages us from our civil and democratic lives and the desire to not engage in a kind of public spirited sense of life is what makes people not notice when they might lose the freedom to participate in democratic and civic senses of life and public spiritedness. So here is a couple paragraphs that Popper writes on that. Popper. This distinction between the personal and the institutional element in a social situation is a point which is often missed by the critics of democracy. Most of them are dissatisfied with democratic institutions because they find that they do not necessarily prevent a state or a policy from falling short of some moral standards or of some political demands, which may be urgent as well as admirable. But these critics misdirect their attacks. They do not understand what democratic institutions may be expected to do and what the alternative to democratic institutions would be. Democracy provides the institutional framework for the reform of political institutions. It makes possible the reform of institutions without using violence, and thereby the use of reason in the designing of new institutions and the adjusting of old ones. It cannot provide reason. The question of the intellectual and moral standard of its citizens is to a large degree a personal problem. The idea that this problem can be tackled, in turn, by an institutional eugenic and educational control is, I believe, mistaken. It is quite wrong to blame democracy for the political shortcomings of a democratic state. We should rather blame ourselves, that is to say, the citizens of the democratic state. In a non-democratic state, the only way to achieve reasonable reforms is by the violent overthrow of the government and the introduction of a democratic framework. Those who criticize democracy on any moral grounds fail to distinguish between personal and institutional problems. It rests with us to improve matters. The democratic institutions cannot improve themselves. The problem of improving them is always a problem for persons rather than for institutions. But if we want improvements, we must make clear which institutions we want to improve. I think there's a hugely important underlying point in here that Popper is making in terms of democracy. And I don't even know if I totally know how to articulate this point. But I'll take a stab at it. And it's something like, I see even in our era, 
an interest. And I mean, this could be selection biased based on podcasts I listen to, news I read, commentators I listen to talk about this kind of stuff. So I'm willing to take that with a grain of salt in all of this. But the alternative to democracy is no chance in any alternative to democracy is no option but power. That's it. (laughs) And violent. Power backed up with force. Uh, Democracy is messy and shortcomings in democratic institutions are the responsibility of people who live in democracies to fix them. That's part of the responsibility and duty of living in a democracy is that you are free to go about to attempt to fix them using reform and campaigning and voting and making your message known, which again, this goes to a much deeper point, which is why freedom of opinion is paramount in a democracy and freedom of opinion is basically synonymous with freedom of speech because we don't know ever where the good ideas to reform our institutions will come from and thus we need to be able to hear from everyone on all topics here. And the idea that the solution to a shortcoming in a democratic society is to scrap democracy is so naive and so juvenile and so non-understanding of what happens to people who live in non-democracies if they don't have an opinion that is with the majority or are interested in what the government is doing. And so I feel like the only people in a democracy who could be seriously championing the idea of not having democracy would have to be infants, children. And I guess I will leave it as an open question to the listener of what, if they've come across anybody in our societies who are lamenting democracy's shortcomings as a fault with democracy itself rather than us fixing the institutions within a democracy through reform, I ask the dear listener to uh, determine what they think about the maturity level of those kind of people. But I digress. And then there was one other point with all of this that Popper made on leadership that I think is really crucial to talk about because he brings up the point of if you have institutions that are educating just for leadership, you make it a race and a competition much more than, um, I think I talked about in The Righteous Mind, we have this tension in our own mind psychologically between what Haidt calls exploratory thought and confirmatory thought. And exploratory thought is kind of the entire spirit I'm hoping behind the liberal soul of like, I'm just curious about the world and interested in discovering new things and further developing the kind of framework and structures that allow that kind of freedom to go explore the world. And Popper makes an argument that if we educate and create our institutions around towards like specifically trying to create leaders rather than developing institutions to not be too vulnerable to bad leaders, then you're going to make it a competition or race and you're going to make it you're going to make the focus of the would-be leaders on the campaign, on the competition, on the becoming the leader, rather than how to solve problems for people in the world. So here's Popper on this. Popper. But it is a criticism of the tendency to burden institutions, especially educational institutions, with the impossible task of selecting the best. This should never be made their task. This tendency transforms our educational system into a race course and turns a course of studies into a hurdle race. Instead of encouraging the student to devote themselves to their studies for the sake of studying, 
instead of encouraging in them a real love for the subject and for inquiry, the student is encouraged to study for the sake of their personal career. They are led to acquire only such knowledge as is serviceable in getting them over the hurdles, which must be cleared for the sake of their advancement. In other words, even in the field of science, our methods of selection are based upon an appeal to personal ambition of a somewhat crude form. It is a natural reaction to this appeal if the eager student is looked upon with suspicion by their colleagues. The impossible demand for an institutional selection of intellectual leaders endangers the very life, not only of science, but of intelligence. And to a minor degree, this is actually something I have experienced in my life, is um, a job I used to have where I, I loved it, but over the last couple years of my time there, there was a kind of cultural takeover that put so much more emphasis on leadership training and becoming a leader and kind of like seeing how the careers of the people within could be advanced through that kind of leadership paradigm. And so much less of the focus ever went on our clients or like how to actually put any sort of the training into a real life situation. It became much more about like competing with each other and career advancement. And for someone like me, unfortunately, I think that that really lets down the people who are the most vulnerable and who need our help the most, which are our clients, especially in a nonprofit job. As well as, I don't think it makes people within the institution sharp. I think it makes them suspicious and conniving, as opposed to kind of working in flow with each other in a way that kind of, if you're not overemphasizing for the best leaders, but just kind of like trying to do a good job in the world and trying to improve things with rational ends and putting bulwarks into your institution, that, that kind of thing just doesn't happen in the same way. So I guess in a sense, I have a little bit of a personal sad story there. Maybe that's why this section resonated with me a lot, but I think it's true. It's like, if we, I mean, I think this has already happened, but university participation as status symbol and career advancement is going to do nothing for science. It's going to do nothing for the humanities. It's going to do nothing for art. It's going to do nothing for any of the disciplines that have at some, I mean, to paraphrase John Stuart Mill, at some rare but great times in, in history really propelled humanity forward. That the, the second order careerist emphasis and status emphasis is gonna it's a vortex <laughs> it's a never-ending vortex so that's going to take us into the philosopher king chapter and how <laughs> i love this this is the grand chapter this is like kind of what the culmination of the republic is plato's republic is the philosopher king should rule the perfect state <laughs> plato says rulers are allowed to lie for the state but the ruled are not so <laughs> here's a little uh section on there popper the contrast between the Platonic and the Socratic creed is even greater than I have shown so far. Plato, I have said, followed Socrates in his definition of the philosopher. Whom do you call true philosophers? Those who love truth, we read in the Republic. But he himself is not quite truthful when he makes this statement. He does not really believe in it, for he bluntly declares in other places that it is one of the royal privileges of the sovereign to make full use of lies and deceit. It is the business of the rulers of the city, if it is anybody's, to tell lies, deceiving both its enemies 
and its own citizens for the benefit of the city, and no one else must touch this privilege. For the benefit of the city, says Plato, again we find that the appeal to the principle of collective utility is the ultimate ethical consideration. Totalitarian morality overrules everything, even the definition, the idea of the philosopher. It need hardly be mentioned that, by the same principle of political expediency, the ruled are to be forced to tell the truth. If the ruler catches anyone else in a lie, then he will punish them for introducing a practice which injures and endangers the city. Only in this unexpected sense are the platonic rulers, the philosopher kings, lovers of truth. I have to say, reading this book, you get the raw humor there from Popper, if you read it closely, that I don't think is necessarily uh, clear at the top. Because... Plato's goal is to wrest all change. He argues even that eventually he wants the rulers to believe the lies. And this kind of brings, I, I, I guess this is probably the part of Plato called the noble lie. And the noble lie in the Platonic sense. And again, I'm not an expert on Plato. So if you are, and I'm totally wrong, I'm doing my best. I think this section bolsters it like Plato, it's okay to lie to the citizens of a country if it's for the greater good of advancing your state. So... <laughs> I think what's tricky about this is that you can definitely see some practical utility in the in the noble lie. Uh, I would argue that for a lot of times, things like religions have been the noble lie, the lie to push the energy of your citizenry or the people you're in charge of in a certain direction that you want it to go. And you could believe this. I mean, I think that's why Plato says even he wants the leaders to believe the noble lie in that. To me, the noble, the thing is that the lies are stories we make up about the world, that humans make up about the world to motivate behavior. So religions are good narratives to motivate behavior. Communism was a really strong narrative to motivate behavior. The best lies appeal to the deep levels of your base emotional instincts and moral intuitions about the world and that morality binds and blinds that Jonathan Haidt talked about when I did The Righteous Mind of like, well... Even like our nation is better and we can, we're the glorious nation, we're the great nation. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to Hegel. But the story spun by the witch doctor or the shaman or the priest or, in this case, the philosopher king for the masses of people. And I guess um, I just think you shouldn't lie to people if you can't really know what you're saying is true. I don't think you should say it. So I actually have an alternative that I've been thinking in my life. I call it the noble truth. <laughs> and it's probably less emotionally satisfying, but I think it's more peaceful. And I think the, what I'm con the philosophical notion of the noble truth, which is, which is in contradistinction to the noble lie, is we need to consciously choose our own fictions that we want to live by, not have them be passively given to us by some authority figure. So rather than me maintain my belief in a Christian God, which was given to me through my family and the church and my culture, which I don't think is true, and I think it has a lot of liabilities, I choose to embrace the story of liberalism, which I know is ultimately also a fiction in the sense that it's made up by people and not given to people on high. It's a form of living. It's a 
ethos. It's an ethical framework that has been built up by people's brains and nothing beyond that. And I guess I'm saying the noble truth is that choosing to live by ultimate fictions that I think are approximately the good because that's what living an honest life can consists of. And I think part of highest common denominator is believing in the noble truth, in believing that other people can also consciously choose the fictions that we live by. And I don't want to be too idiosyncratic on the word fiction here. Like, I'm an existentialist as well. I believe with Camus that we are confronted with the absurd and the void in that we have brains and psychologies that so crave meaning in a universe that appears to be meaningless because there isn't for any evidence for meaning external to the meaning of life that we give it. And since it's humans that give meaning to our lives, in my worldview, the noble truth is consciously choosing how to live, even if the ethos that we consciously choose doesn't run any deeper than human life anyway. And I think that's a paradigm shift. I do. I think it would have been an impossible thing for me to even think about as a teenager. Um, Never mind the difficult philosophy, but just the idea that it's kind of (laughs) almost a conceptual mistake to look for something deeper than the meaning in life that we give it through living it. But like Eric Weinstein put it, we need better fictions. We need better heuristics. We need better stories that we consciously choose that aren't parochial, provincial, so demonizing of the other. We need stories that are inclusive of the other and to grow the universalization. The constant attempt at universal human participation in the world, even though we will probably never reach it and we shouldn't let the mistakes get us down or make us think we shouldn't live in democracies, for example. (laughs) Something like that. Anyway, I still think this is a nascent idea, but the noble truth is my antidote to the noble lie in that rather than being told by the leaders in whatever form that takes, your state, your job, your community, rather than being lied to for your own good, choosing, consciously choosing the way you want to live, understanding that if you do ask the universe for meaning, you might get barely back a why. <laughs> That's not meant to be nihilistic. It's meant to be existential, I suppose. I shouldn't dwell on that too long because this podcast is not called The Existential Soul. So in this Philosopher King chapter, uh, there's another section here in this chapter where Plato is being fast and loose with words that Popper points out. And Popper points out that in the Socratic sense, the philosopher is a lover and seeker of wisdom. But Plato is a proud possessor of wisdom. Um, And for Plato, a philosopher is a lover and a seer of the divine forms or ideas like a shaman. And here's the section where he writes that. Popper. The first and most important function of the philosopher king is that of the city's founder and lawgiver. It is clear why Plato needs a philosopher for this task. If the state is to be stable, then it must be a true copy of the divine form or idea of the state. But only a philosopher who is fully proficient in the highest of sciences, in dialectics, is able to see and to copy the heavenly original. 
This point receives much emphasis in the part of the Republic in which Plato develops his arguments for the sovereignty of the philosophers. Philosophers love to see the truth, and a real lover always loves to see the whole, not merely the parts. Thus he does not love, as ordinary people do, sensible things and their beautiful sounds and colors and shapes, but he wants to see and to admire the real nature of beauty, the former idea of beauty. In this way, Plato gives the term philosopher a new meaning, that of a lover and a seer of the divine world of forms or ideas. So Socrates would have talked about philosophy as the love of wisdom, which, which, is, an, which is a process of asking questions, of always refining your argument, of not thinking that you know more than you do, whereas Plato formed it as, in the Republic, being able to see beyond all the parts to the whole, to the perfect, to the ideal, to the form. And only the philosopher kings, or the philosopher per se, in Plato's estimation, can do that. Well, these are two very different kinds of people. One of the things I've noticed about reading Popper's book is that Plato is such a it appears to be such a word twister, using the word philosopher, and then if people think of People think of philosopher when Plato says it, they think of Socrates, someone with no money walking around the streets asking questions. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like a pretty intellectually integral way to go about doing things. Whereas by philosopher, Plato means someone who can see beyond what normal people can do, like a shaman. So there's a kind of a mystical or a mystic element to Plato's um, sense of the word philosopher. And uh, just as an aside, I mean, I think you can see duplicity in a person when they use a word that is generally meant to mean one thing and they're using it in a different way but they don't point out that they're using it in a different way and so that's why you need (laughs) i mean plato needed a socrates there i guess socrates would have seen through that trick that's a really good kind of like element of propaganda and dishonesty is when you use a word that has a general meaning to most people, but you don't use it in that sense. You mean it in a different way, and then you don't tell anyone you mean it in a different way. And so then when people go along with you, you're saying, well, see, I'm just using this word. Plato could just say, I'm just using this word philosopher, and everyone agrees, even though people aren't psychologically grasping the thing that Plato is intending in his use of the word. I mean, I can't think of a better word for that than deception. That's lying. Just more sophisticated, more clever. And there's a platonic wisdom for a permanent political class rule here. So then Popper writes, Thus Plato's philosophical education has a definite political function. It puts a mark on the rulers, and it establishes a barrier between the rulers and the ruled. This has remained a major function of higher education down to our time. Platonic wisdom is acquired largely for the sake of establishing a permanent political class rule. It can be described as political medicine, giving mystic powers to its possessors, the medicine men. I think this is just a spot-on diagnosis by Popper. It allows some sort of ethereal, metaphysical, in Platonic terms, it would be the beauty or the form to be attached to the philosopher kings. I mean, in our day and age, we would probably say the elites, people who graduate from top-tier Ivy League uh, universities that were paid for by someone in their family and are getting kind of like fast-tracked onto political dynasties in our country or political power groups. So, yeah, I think (laughs) that hasn't changed. That's just a good diagnosis by Popper. And then I just wanted to read the last paragraph of the Philosopher King chapter. 
Popper makes the point that he thinks Plato himself wanted to be the philosopher king. He sees enough in the Republic. I, I didn't study that part enough to know. I just think it's interesting that there's a... It's interesting to think of a ancient classical philosopher as someone who has psychological weaknesses and wants power like other people might today. This book humanized Plato for me in a way, even if it casts him in a negative light. I actually kind of have more sympathy for him in a sense. Not as much when I think about how totalitarian his ambitions were, but his weaknesses of living in a turbulent time. I don't know. People are complicated, hey? Uh, But I want to read the last paragraph of this chapter that Popper writes, The Philosopher King, because I think it's great. Popper. What a monument of human smallness is this idea of the philosopher king. What a contrast between it and the simplicity and humaneness of Socrates, who warned the statesman against the danger of being dazzled by his own power, excellence, and wisdom, and who tried to teach him that what matters most, that we are all frail human beings. What a decline from this world of irony and reason and truthfulness down to Plato's kingdom of the sage, whose magical powers raise him high above ordinary men, although not quite high enough to forego the use of lies, or to neglect the sorry trade of every shaman, the selling of spells, of breeding spells, in exchange for power over his fellow men. So maybe I was too early in my sympathy with Plato. <laughs> but it's such a great contrast between, the like Popper says, the humaneness of Socrates and the willingness of Plato's agenda to lie to people, to use spells, to give spells in order to have power over them. I agree. It's quite a small ambition. It's not a noble goal. And this, again, this tone that Popper uses is what I call hard-nosed liberalism. Not mincing words on important things is hard-nosed liberalism. It's no small thing, Plato's ambition, the totalitarian state. Can't use soft words against cruelty and power-hungry ambition that would destroy the lives of many, many people. So that brings us into chapter nine, aestheticism, perfectionism, and utopianism. And in this one, Popper lays out the two different agendas of how going about fixing uh, social problems. And he contrasts the utopian social engineering goal versus the piecemeal social engineering goal. Here is Popper. The utopian approach may be described as follows. Any rational action must have a certain aim. It is rational in the same degree as it pursues its aims consciously and consistently, and as it determines its means according to this end. To choose the end is therefore the first thing we have to do if we wish to act rationally. And we must be careful to determine our real or ultimate ends, from which we must distinguish clearly those intermediate or partial ends, which actually are only means or steps on the way to the ultimate end. If we neglect this distinction, then we must also neglect to ask whether these partial ends are likely to promote the ultimate end, and accordingly, we must fail to act rationally. These principles, if applied to the realm of political activity, demand that we must determine our ultimate political end, or aim, or the ideal state, before taking any practical action. Only when this ultimate aim is determined, in rough outline at least, Only when we are in possession of something like a blueprint of the society at which we aim, only then can we begin to consider the best ways and means for its realization and to draw up a plan for practical action. So this is the utopian approach. Uh, Maybe I don't have to point out, but I will, that 
details matter. <laughs> the devil's in the details. And to gloss over practical matters for the goal of the whole beforehand, before going about, is just asking for disaster, which has been the case in every society where it's been tried ever, 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 ever. So this is contrasted with what Popper calls the piecemeal social engineer, Popper. The piecemeal engineer will, accordingly, adopt the method of searching for and fighting against the greatest and most urgent evils of society, rather than searching for and fighting for its greatest ultimate good. This difference is far from being merely verbal. In fact, it is most important. It is the difference between a reasonable method of improving the lot of humans and a method which, if really tried, may easily lead to an intolerable increase in human suffering. It is the difference between a method which can be applied at any moment and a method whose advocacy may easily become a means of continually postponing action until a later date when conditions are more favorable, and it is also the difference between the only method of improving matters which has so far been really successful at any time in any place, Russia included, and a method which, wherever it has been tried, has only led to the use of violence in place of reason, and if not, to its own abandonment, at any rate to that of its original blueprint. Uh, this is something I actually talked a lot about my other podcast with my cousin David, uh, Really True Fiction. It came up in a number of episodes, the difference between the tragic sense of life and the utopian sense of life. And the utopian sense of life says, what are all these things blocking us from perfection? And the tragic sense of life says, um, what are these things that we have created to help us from our suffering? Uh, maybe an easier way to put it is that the utopian thinker says, how do we get to heaven? And the tragic thinker says, how do we get a little further away from hell? And the, and in Popper's terms here, the piecemeal social engineer is much more like the person who has the tragic sense of life, not the utopian one. The utopian one, what is this line? The piecemeal engineer will accordingly adopt the method of searching for and fighting against the greatest and most urgent evils in society rather than searching for and fighting for the greatest ultimate good. Because, <laughs> maybe this is an elementary point, it's a little easier to see things that are evil and terrible and that can be fixed rather than seeing what is the ultimate good. That doesn't mean it's always easy to see things that are wrong and evil. And I think living in Canada and the West, there's lots of things that we weren't educated on that were horrible in the history of our countries and great evils done by the governments of our countries and by um, religious groups and, and individual citizens in our country. In my mind, the clearest thing I'm thinking of is the residential schools in Canada and how just horrible they were and heartbreaking and you just can't imagine that kind of stuff happening to anyone let alone children i mean it's it breaks your heart so the point there is that we, it's not like it's always easy to see evil or to try and or to try and fight it especially if you have an interest in not that's not quite the argument the argument is it's actually easier to know what to change that's going wrong than to know what to do always to make the ultimate good and that's the difference between the piecemeal and the utopian social engineer in Popper's terms. And I agree. Because there's another thing that is a problem with utopian thinking, which is a succession of leadership. So, Popper. The situation must become even worse for the utopian engineer. 
The reconstruction of society is a big undertaking, which must cause considerable inconvenience to many, and for a considerable span of time. Accordingly, the utopian engineer will have to be deaf to many complaints. In fact, it will be part of his business to suppress unreasonable objections. He will say, like Lenin, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. But with it, he must invariably suppress reasonable criticism also. Another difficulty of utopian engineering is related to the problem of the dictator's successor. The very sweep of such a utopian undertaking makes it improbable that it will realize its ends during the lifetime of one social engineer or group of engineers. And if the successors do not pursue the same ideal, then all of the sufferings of the people for the sake of the ideal may have been in vain. What had appeared the ideal state to the people who made the original blueprint may not appear so to their successors. Well, sorry, I know that you destroyed the lives of millions of people for your idea of the ideal state, but I don't quite see it that way, so we're just going to move on. <laughs> oh, God. Never mind the tragedies there. It's kind of ironic, I guess, in these kind of utopian societies, they break down at the successor point because... um. No, I mean, this is preempting something Popper says, but there's just no way to be that smart to know that much about how to make the perfect. <laughs> and the hubris to take it on is pretty astounding, I think. For the sake of clarity, I don't criticize utopian thinking or communism or Marx or the Soviet Union because I think corporate America is the best response, the ultimate response on the other side. There's obviously so much wrong with that kind of culture and the, the kind of consumeristic ethos that has infected so much of the West. So I don't think that's the right antidote. That's not the right balance. But I guess I am saying that I think the utopian approach is worse than corporate America, even if I don't think corporate America is good. I still am able to triage there, which is probably why I go after utopian thinking more, because I think it's... Utopian thinking is responsible for death and violence at a scale that is incalculable, whereas a lot of the problems in market-based, consumeristic, corporate America are just stealing your soul, which is not good, but at least you have a living body <laughs> to have the soul stolen from in that society. Anyway. So then Popper continues, any difference of opinion between utopian engineers must therefore lead in the absence of rational methods to the use of power instead of reason, i.e. to violence. If any progress in any definite direction is made at all, then it is made in spite of the method adopted, not because of it. The success may be due, for instance, to the excellence of the leaders, but we must never forget that excellent leaders cannot be produced by rational methods, but only by luck. And then Popper continues, What I criticize under the name utopian engineering recommends the reconstruction of society as a whole, i.e. very sweeping changes whose practical consequences are hard to calculate, owing to our limited experiences. It claims to plan rationally for the whole of society, although we do not possess anything like the factual knowledge which would, make, which would be necessary to make good such an ambitious claim. We cannot possess such knowledge since we have insufficient practical experience in this kind of planning, and knowledge of facts must be based upon experience. At present, the sociological knowledge necessary for large-scale engineering is simply non-existent. So, like Popper, I feel like the great problem with 
utopian social engineers is the hubris. We just don't know. So we're liable to make horrible mistakes, which I think I pointed out in another podcast is that that happened a lot in socially engineered utopian societies. How the fuck do you run an economy when they're when you're in charge of it? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. And then here's a section where Popper draws the comparison between utopianism and Plato's approach. Popper. But there is one element within utopianism which is particularly characteristic of Plato's approach, in which Marx does not oppose, although it is perhaps the most important part of those elements which I have attacked as unrealistic. It is the sweep of utopianism, its attempt to deal with society as a whole, leaving no stone unturned. It is the conviction that one has to go to the very root of the social evil, that nothing short of a complete eradication of the offending social system will do if we wish to bring any decency to the world. It is, in short, its uncompromising radicalism. The reader will notice that I'm using this term in its original and literal sense, not in the now customary sense of a liberal progressivism, but in order to characterize an attitude of going to the root of the matter. Both Plato and Marx are dreaming of the apocalyptic revolution which will radically transfigure the whole social world. This sweep, this extreme radicalism of the Platonic approach, and of the Marxian as well, is, I believe, connected with its aestheticism, i.e., with the desire to build a world which is not only a little better and more rational than ours, but which is free from all of its ugliness. Not a crazy quilt, an old garment, badly patched, but an entirely new gown, a really beautiful new world. This aestheticism is a very understandable attitude. In fact, I believe most of us suffer a little from such dreams of perfection. But this aesthetic enthusiasm becomes valuable only if it is bridled by reason, by a feeling of responsibility, and by a humanitarian urge to help. Otherwise, it is a dangerous enthusiasm, liable to develop into a form of neurosis or hysteria. Popper continues. Nowhere do we find this aestheticism more strongly expressed than in Plato. Plato was an artist, and like many of the best artists, he tried to visualize a model, the divine original of his work, and to copy it faithfully. A good number of the quotations given in the last chapter illustrate this point. What Plato describes as dialectics is, in the main, the intellectual intuition of the world of pure beauty. His trained philosophers are men who have seen the truth of what is beautiful and just and good, and can bring it down from heaven to earth. Politics, to Plato, is the royal art. It is an art, not in a metaphorical sense in which we may speak about the art of handling men, or in the art of getting things done, but in a more literal sense of the word. It is an art of composition, like music, painting, or architecture. The platonic politician composes cities for beauty's sake. And then here's the really important paragraph. Popper. But here I must protest. I do not believe that human lives may be made the means for satisfying an artist's desire for self-expression. We must demand, rather, that every man should be given, if he wishes, the right to model his life himself, as far as this does not interfere too much with others. Much as I may sympathize with the aesthetic impulse, I suggest that the artist might seek expression in another material. Politics, I demand, must uphold equalitarian and individualistic principles. Dreams of beauty have to submit to the necessity of helping men in distress and men who suffer injustice and to the necessity of constructing institutions to serve such purposes. Again, hard-nosed. I get it, Plato, but sorry, we can't do that. When people's lives and livelihoods and well-being hang in the balance, that aestheticism of 
Plato's approach to doing politics beautifully and making a beautiful city just don't cut it. And I love that. I just, I love that tone of Popper, that defense of the individualistic ethos against that kind of aestheticism. And then I'm going to read the last couple paragraphs of this chapter because it's just so good at putting into words these deep thoughts I have about this kind of stuff. And Popper writes about it so well. So, um, the end of the aestheticism, perfectionism, and utopianism chapter. Popper. In order to criticize the foundation of Plato's aesthetic radicalism, we might distinguish two different points. The first is this. What some people have in mind who speak of our social system and the need to replace it by another system is very similar to a picture painted on a canvas, which has to be wiped clean before one can paint a new one. But there are some great differences. One of them is that the painter and those who cooperate with him, as well as the institutions which make their life possible, dreams and plans for a better world, and his standards of decency and morality are all a part of the social system, i.e. of the picture to be wiped out. If they were really to clean the canvas, they would have to destroy themselves and their utopian plans. And what follows then would probably not be a beautiful copy of a platonic ideal, but chaos. The political artist clamors, like Archimedes, for a place outside the social world on which he can place his stand in order to lever it off his hinges. But such a place does not exist, and the social world must continue to function during any reconstruction. This is the simple reason why we must reform its institutions little by little, until we have more experience in social engineering. This leads us to the more important second point, to the irrationalism which is inherent in radicalism. In all matters, we can only learn by trial and error, by making mistakes and improvements. We can never rely on inspiration, although inspirations may be most valuable as long as they can be checked by experience. Accordingly, it is not reasonable to assume that a complete reconstruction of our social world would lead at once to a workable system. Rather, we should expect that, owing to the lack of experience, many mistakes would be made which could be eliminated only by a long and laborious process of small adjustments. In other words, by that rational method of piecemeal engineering whose application we advocate. But those who dislike this method as insufficiently radical would have again to wipe out their freshly constructed society in order to start anew with a clean canvas. And since the new start, for the same reasons, would not lead to perfection either, they would have to repeat this process without ever getting anywhere. Those who admit this and are prepared to adopt our more modest method of piecemeal improvements, but only after the first radical canvas cleaning, can hardly escape the criticism that their sweeping and violent measures were quite unnecessary. Aestheticism and radicalism must lead us to jettison reason and to replace it by a desperate hope for political miracles. This irrational attitude, which springs from an intoxication with dreams of a beautiful world, is what I call romanticism. It may seek its heavenly city in the past or in the future. It may preach back to nature or forward to a world of love and beauty. But its appeal is always to our emotions rather than to our reason. Even with the best intentions of making heaven on earth, it only succeeds in making it a hell. That hell which man alone prepares for his fellow men. I think that rather long section just totally perfectly encapsulates my feelings on um, how <laughs> the utopian project will go. It's just too complicated. We don't know enough about social engineering to know what the perfect outcome will be from the start. And so many mistakes will get made along the way. 
which become compounded. And then we have to wipe those mistakes out. And all the meantime, the social world continues because everyone actually lives every day and not just in the perfect future of the beautiful city in some time in the future, but every single day, every single minute. And there's a lot of details made up in every single minute of every single day that aren't workable through a appeal to romantic emotion no matter how fucking satisfying it is to give into that. And I feel it in myself. But when it comes to our dealings with other people in the political world, in the social world, that really matters for other human beings' lives and their moral consciences, which is the bedrock of the liberal soul, we have to do each other the deep respect of using our rationality and our reason and not our emotions with each other. Our humanity deserves it is how I would put it. All right, one last chapter in this episode, and it's the chapter that shares its name with the book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, Chapter 10. And I want to open up with um, a section that um, Popper writes, which adds a little bit of... This whole chapter is a little bit more reflective and a little bit, a little bit less polemical, but I love it. It's much, And it's philosophical in that sense, so... Popper talks about how in the interim between when he wrote the previous chapters and this chapter, he did some reflection on what he thought were Plato's intentions. And he became a little bit more sympathetic on them because he thought that Plato was actually trying to, at some level, alleviate people's unhappiness from living in a state where they had so much personal responsibility and freedom, which led to sort of this kind of existential paralysis, especially in times of social upheaval. So, Popper. To put this point more precisely, I believe that Plato, with deep sociological insight, found that his contemporaries were suffering under a severe strain, and that this strain was due to the social revolution which had begun with the rise of democracy and individualism. He succeeded in discovering the main cause of their deeply rooted unhappiness, social change and social dissension, and he did his utmost to fight them. There is no reason to doubt that one of his most powerful motives was to win back happiness for the citizens. For reasons discussed later in this chapter, I believe that the medico-political treatment which he recommended, the arrest of change and the return to tribalism, was hopelessly wrong. But the recommendation, though not practicable as a therapy, testifies to Plato's power of diagnosis. It shows that he knew what was amiss, and that he understood the strain, the unhappiness, under which the people were laboring even though he erred in his fundamental claim that by leading them back to tribalism, he could lessen the strain and restore their happiness. And so this is Popper pointing out that Plato really saw some suffering in his people and tried to, or in the people of the cities that he was, in the citizens of the city he was living in. But then he argues that the magical, taboo-based society is a closed society, and an open society is people confronted with decisions. That's kind of what makes it open. So... On the next page, Popper. When I speak of the rigidity of tribalism, I do not mean that no changes can occur in the tribal ways of life. I mean rather that the comparatively infrequent changes have the character of religious conversions or revulsions, or of the introduction of new magical taboos. They are not based upon a rational attempt to improve social conditions. Apart from such changes, which are rare, taboos rigidly regulate and dominate all aspects of life. They do not leave many loopholes. There are few problems in this form of life and nothing really equivalent to moral problems. 
I do not mean to say that a member of a tribe does not sometimes need much heroism and endurance in order to act in accordance with the taboos. What I mean is that he will rarely find himself in the position of doubting how he ought to act. The right way is always determined, though difficulties must be overcome in following it. It is determined by taboos, by magical tribal institutions, which can never become objects of critical consideration. Not even a Heraclitus distinguishes clearly between the institutional laws of tribal life and the laws of nature. Both are taken to be of the same magical character. Based upon the collective tribal tradition, the institutions leave no room for personal responsibility. The taboos that establish some form of group responsibility may be the forerunner of what we call personal responsibility, but they are fundamentally different from it. They are not based upon a principle of reasonable accountability, but rather upon the magical ideas, such as the idea of appeasing the powers of fate. And this is like a deep psychological insight, I think, is that the advantage the tribal taboo-based closed society have has over the open one is that basically there's no dissonance. You never have to foist onto yourself personal responsibility for decisions because there's a rule for everything, basically. And I can tell you that this is um this is true growing up in a in a pretty religious household is that um there was some Bible verse or there was some <laughs> cultural motif or some sort of uh, norm or more available for basically everything. I mean, that makes sense. Christianity is such an old uh, worldview. But there's something, I mean, there was certainly something easy, I guess is the right word, for like the answer of like, well, because Jesus says so, or because God says so, or because that's what Jesus wants you to do here's the decision you would make because, you know, what would Jesus do? <laughs> like that ascent, that really does take away any need of personal decision-making. And I guess the point is that the tribal taboo-based society, it's too abusive to individual people. It hurts them. It takes away their individualism to live a life that they want to. And that's not the liberal ethos, for sure. And I think once you think about it at the level of any individual person being abused in a situation like that that doesn't want to be, I think it really has to change the paradigm. Otherwise, it's prejudice or domination. And I don't think those are as ethical frameworks as their opposites. So I thought this next section that he talks about in the in the open society, he calls it the abstract society. I just thought it was so funny that he wrote about it this way before there was the internet, because he writes, Popper, as a consequence of its loss of organic character, an open society may become by degrees what I should like to term an abstract society. It may be to a considerable extent, lose the character of a concrete or real group of people or a system of such real groups. This point, which has been rarely understood, may ex be explained by way of an exaggeration. We could conceive of a society in which people practically never meet face to face. Again, written in 1945. I thought that was so funny. Nothing too deep there, I don't think. Just it was so funny. It made me chuckle. I was like, wow, what a prediction. Uh, it's only gotten more that way. But there is a cost to an open society, and that cost is angst, anxiety, and an uncertainty of how to live well and being foisted into it and having to make decisions for your own life. And that's what Popper points out. Popper, the strain of civilization was beginning to be felt. This strain, this uneasiness, is a consequence of the breakdown of the closed society. 
It is still felt even in our day, especially in times of social change. It is the strain created by the effort which life in an open and partially abstract society continually demands from us. By the endeavor to be rational, to forego at least some of our emotional social needs, to look after ourselves and to accept responsibilities. We must, I believe, bear this strain as the price to be paid for every increase in knowledge, in reasonableness, in cooperation, and in mutual help, and consequently in our chances of survival and in the size of the population. It is the price we have to pay for being human. So I think that makes a... Uh, it, it, I like admitting that it's not easy. It's not like it's just an obvious choice, the open society or the closed one. Duh. It's looking at different sides of the ledger and choosing which one you want to live by. And I think that though there is more anxiety in the open society, there's also less abuse. But one of the things that I love is that Popper notes all of the people that he calls of the great generation of the first ever, at least, open society that we know of, which was the um, Greek an Athenian society in the kind of generation before Plato. And he gives the names of all the people that um, that lived in this time that are worth reading and knowing about. Uh, so he talks about Sophocles, Thucydides, Euripides, Aristophanes, Pericles, Herodotus, Protagoras, Democritus, and of course, and superlatively, Socrates. And Democritus is someone I've mentioned a few times before on this podcast. Democritus is arguably the first ever scientist. I mean, I can't remember if he was before or after Lucretius, but both Lucretius and Democritus were like considered really early progenitors of science in the Greek world. Democritus, I believe, was the one who gave us the word atom in a scientific sense. He thought the world was made of atoms. So the I'm pretty sure that's where the word atom comes from, is from Democritus using it. But um, there are a few quotes here from Democritus and then one from Pericles I want to read to really give the feeling of how, even though the idea of historicism and the closed society is old, so is the ideas that underpin the open society. And it's, I don't know, it's hopeful for me, I suppose. Popper. Since I have not so far said much about Pericles and nothing at all about Democritus, I may first use some of their own words to illustrate the new faith, new faith being open society. First, Democritus. Not out of fear, but out of a feeling of what is right should we abstain from doing wrong. Virtue is based most of all upon respecting the other man. Every man is a little world of his own. Parentheses, Luke here. The every man is a world of his own. Forgive the gendered language. It was ancient Greece. They had slaves even, so they weren't that enlightened, I guess. The title, Every Man is a Little World of His Own, is, is reminds me of what Gopnik wrote, is that the liberal temperament notices that everyone else has a moral conscience and has a life of to their own, and that is something worth respecting and wanting to cherish even and, and make work in the world. Back to Democritus. We ought to do our utmost to help those who have suffered injustice. To be good means to do no wrong, and also not to want to do wrong. It is good deeds, not words that count. The poverty of a democracy is better than the prosperity which allegedly goes with aristocracy or monarchy, just as liberty is better than slavery. The wise man belongs to all countries, for the home of a great soul is the whole world. To him is due also that remark of a true scientist. I would rather find a single causal law than be the king of Persia. And um, the next one I want to read is of Pericles, and Pericles was the leader of Athens. And it's just, I don't know, again, so hopeful that it's 
an old story that we can draw on. So this is Popper quoting Pericles. So, Pericles. Our political system does not compete with institutions which are elsewhere in force. We do not copy our neighbors, but try to be an example. Our administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. The laws afford equal justice to all alike in their private disputes, but we do not ignore the claims of excellence. When a citizen distinguishes himself, then he will be called to serve the state in preference to others, not as a matter of privilege, but as a reward of merit. And poverty is no bar. The freedom we enjoy extends also to ordinary life. We are not suspicious of one another and do not nag our neighbor if he chooses to go his own way. But this freedom does not make us lawless. We are taught to respect the magistrates and the laws and never to forget that we must protect the injured. And we are also taught to observe those unwritten laws whose sanction lies only in the universal feeling of what is right. Our city is thrown open to the world. We never expel a foreigner. We are free to live exactly as we please, and yet we are always ready to face any danger. We love beauty without indulging in fancies, and although we try to improve our intellect, this does not weaken our will. To admit one's poverty is no disgrace with us, but we consider it disgraceful not to make an effort to avoid it. An Athenian citizen does not neglect public affairs when attending to his private business. We consider a man who takes no interest in the state not as harmless, but as useless. And although only a few may originate a policy, we are all able to judge it. We do not look upon discussion as a stumbling block in the way of political action, but as an indispensable preliminary to acting wisely. We believe that happiness is the fruit of freedom, and freedom is that of valor, and we do not shrink from the dangers of war. To sum up, I claim that Athens is the school of Hellas, and that the individual Athenian grows up to develop a happy versatility, a readiness for emergencies, and a self-reliance. Well, even though earlier in this episode I said, who should rule is not the right question, it still would be nice if we had a Pericles in uh, Canada in 2021. I'll say that. But this world is not for everyone, and there have always been enemies of this attitude, as Plato shows us in the age after Pericles, and that there's always going to be this tension between there will always be the Periclean types of who are in favor of this nuanced and sophisticated sense of the open society and freedom, and there will always be people who shun it and are very intellectual in their ways of shunning it. This is on the people who are revolting against freedom in the way that Plato was in his unhappiness with seeing how it was working out. Popper. Unwilling and unable to help mankind along their difficult path into an unknown future which they have to create for themselves, some of the educated tried to make them turn back into the past, incapable of leading a new way. They could only make themselves leaders of the perennial revolt against freedom. It became more necessary for them to assert their superiority by fighting against equality as they were, using Socratic language, misanthropists and misologists incapable of that simple and ordinary generosity which inspires faith in men and faith in human reason and freedom. Yeah, I think I can just leave it at that. There are people like that in our day. <laughs> people distrustful of the capacity of human reason to better our lot into an unknown future. I think that's pretty true. But Socrates, <laughs> there's a line here about how Socrates, Popper says, he criticized them rightly, them being the people revolting against reason. He criticized them rightly for their lack of intellectual honesty and for their obsession with power politics. Well, maybe we need a Socrates in this. <laughs> we need a Pericles and a Socrates in a modern day. Alas. 
And it's just worth noting, too, on uh, one of the pages, Popper writes about Socrates. He showed that a man could die, not only for fate and fame and other grand things of this kind, but also for the freedom of critical thought and for a self-respect which has nothing to do with self-importance or sentimentality. So, you know, Socrates is one of my OGs. That's for sure. And one of the core critiques that Popper lays at Plato is that he was a propagandist as opposed to a genuine thinker who was trying to find the truth. He was twisting language and using a lot of the times the great figure of Socrates and some of the later dialogues to say things opposite of what Socrates was saying in earlier dialogues. And so here's a, here's a section of um, that critique of Plato. He is Plato in this. Popper. But he discovered, perhaps unconsciously, the great secret of the revolt against freedom, formulated in our own day by Pareto. To take advantage of sentiments, not wasting one's energies in futile efforts to destroy them. Instead of showing his hostility to reason, he charmed all intellectuals with his brilliance, flattering and thrilling them by his demand that the learned should rule. Although arguing against justice, he convinced all righteous men that he is its advocate. Not even to himself did he fully admit that he was combating the freedom of thought for which Socrates had died. And by making Socrates his champion, he persuaded all others that he was fighting for it. Plato thus became, unconsciously, the pioneer of the many propagandists who, often in good faith, developed the technique of appealing to moral, humanitarian sentiments for anti-humanitarian, immoral purposes. Again, I invite the listener to make any modern-day parallels there that come to mind. And Popper finishes up this whole first volume with what is the lesson from all of this? What do we learn from Plato in his endeavors and his subterfuge and intentional and maybe sometimes unintentional chicanery with language? And it's that we can't return to tribal magic. The very last couple paragraphs of the whole first volume are as follows. Popper. The lesson which we thus should learn from Plato is the exact opposite of what he tries to teach us. It is a lesson which must not be forgotten. Excellent as Plato's sociological diagnosis was, his own development proves that the therapy he recommended is worse than the evil he tried to combat. Arresting political change is not the remedy. It cannot bring happiness. We can never return to the alleged innocence and beauty of the closed society. Our dream of heaven cannot be realized on earth. Once we begin to rely upon our reason and to use our powers of criticism, once we feel the call of personal responsibilities, and with it, the responsibility of helping to advance knowledge, we cannot return to a state of implicit submission to tribal magic. For those who have eaten of the tree of knowledge, paradise is lost. The more we try to return to the heroic age of tribalism, the more surely do we arrive at the Inquisition, at the secret police, and at a romanticized gangsterism. Beginning with the suppression of reason and truth, we must end with the most brutal and violent destruction of all that is human. There is no return to a harmonious state of nature. If we turn back, then we must go the whole way. We must return to the beasts. It is an issue which we must face squarely hard though it may be for us to do so. If we dream of a return to our childhood, if we are tempted to rely on others and so be happy, if we shrink from the task of carrying our cross, the cross of humaneness, of reason, of responsibility, 
if we lose courage and flinch from the strain, then we must try to fortify ourselves with a clear understanding of the simple decision before us. We can return to the beasts, but if we wish to remain human, there is only one way, the way into the open society. We must go into the unknown, the uncertain, and the insecure, using what reason we may have to plan as well as we can for both security and freedom. I think it was Thomas Paine once wrote, a mind once stretched by an idea can never return to its original form. In a sense, this is the psychological underpinning of why I can't go back to Christianity, because my mind has been stretched too far from it in its original central axioms and doctrines. I could, like, obviously go back to church and hang out with people and talk and catch up and enjoy life, but I can't really believe in the taboos not honestly anyway, not like I did when I was a kid or a teenager. And I think, in a sense, anyone who wants us to go back to the closed society because of the ideal state, because of the great nation, because of the one true God, whatever dogma you choose to throw in there, it can't be done if people's minds have been stretched further than the boundaries of the propaganda for those arguments goes. Incidentally, I think this is why I mean, this is not surprising, I suppose, but why it's always the people who point out flaws in the demagogue or the propagandist or the philosopher king's plan that need to be gotten rid of first because they are, uh, well, I don't know, what would you like? Um, I mean, if you wanted, if you were in like China or North Korea, it'd be something like a, a dangerous citizen to the uh, party or something like that, you know, something really generic and creepy and ultimately totalitarian. And I like that kind of parallelism with, I think it was Pascal wrote that those, the great void, the great darknesses, the great spaces made him tremble with fear. And I wonder if that was a little bit of a, a shot at Pascal by Popper there saying, we need to go into the uncertain and into the unknown and use our reason to make stable for people both freedom and security. Whew, that was a long, it's probably the longest solo episode yet. And that's only part two. There's two more parts to this book. <laughs> so if you are someone who enjoys the liberal soul, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Again, you can subscribe on all major podcasting apps. Leave a rating and review if you're so inclined. You send an email, liberalsoul87 at gmail.com. Uh, there's a Facebook group, Liberal Soul. I really appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast and please get a hold of me if you have anything to say if you think I mean this was a pretty heady episode but if any of it was confusing or boring or not worth your time please let me know (laughs) I'm open for anything I'm always up for conversation and debate or both anyway thank you for listening you found the liberal soul